Pastor Mike is so kind and this congregation is so warm. It was a delight to be with you last night, this morning, the early service, and now again in, uh, in this final service together. And the church is hospitable in every way, including bringing a tall pulpit for me. And um, what more could a fellow want? Uh, my wife and our five children are with me as well, seated right over here. And guys, why don't you just wave to everyone this morning. Thank you so much. We're delighted for the partnership we have with Compass Bible Church and Compass Bible Institute. It's a sweet thing to see this church and the ministry here through the Institute flourishing so well. And uh, God has been kind to us in Kansas City. And we live in an age where I think we don't get as much good news as we would like as believers. Uh, We often get bad news on the political front, but we often get less than encouraging news on the Christian front as well. And we often read of Christian colleges and seminaries struggling, declining, closing. And uh, there's a bright spot in Kansas City. Over the past 10 years, God's been pleased to grow the institution from a school of about 1,000 students to this year we'll finish with right at 5,000 students. And uh, yeah, give the Lord credit. He's given us a faculty that's strong and faithful and a full team there that's devoted to serving the Great Commission and, uh, and to serving the local church, hence those three words for the church. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning as we think together about the church. To Matthew chapter 16, we shall look together beginning in verse 13, verses 13 through 20, and we'll be thinking together about the church triumphant. The church triumphant, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The church triumphant. Verse 13, Scripture reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we rejoice that we come to you as people with hope, people with a gospel hope through the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you to this place in the service when after having prayed and sang songs of the faith and having read your word, now we seek to hear you speak to us. We do so as people who believe that this word is unlike any other. It is your word. It is true. It is living. It is active. We pray this morning that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our faith and strengthen this church through the preaching from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're always the people in context when we come to gather on the Lord's Day. And our context in the summer of 2022 is in many ways a context of discouragement if our eyes are open, our ears are attuned to what's going on. 
Culturally, we, we feel the culture pressing in on us. And we as citizens look around to a nation that is so rapidly changing. Those of us who are of age have trouble recognizing it from just a few decades ago. So many of our beliefs that have been beliefs that the church has preached and taught and that society in the main generally embraced, whether or not they were confessing Christians, have been redefined before our eyes, right? We see marriage having been redefined, sexuality redefined, what it is to be a man or woman redefined. And we see all of this happening at such a rapid pace that it's alarming. What is more, we feel the pressures of, of religious liberty and, and, and the challenges to religious liberty pressing in on us at the local and state and even at the national levels. And it just feels as though as the people of God that the, the land is changing beneath our feet by the day. What is more, when we move from the culture to the church, often we look around and, and we see things and we, we perceive, we see signs of, of things changing in a not so good way as well. We read of churches in decline. We read of Christian organizations reputationally being challenged. We read of ministry leaders falling in sin. And so there's much around for us to be discouraged by as we gather this Lord's Day in the summer of 2022. But then we come to a passage like Matthew 16. It reminds us anew that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to, of all people, be a confident bunch. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ministers not merely in our own power, but by the power of Christ. Not merely in our own energy, but in the energy of the Holy Spirit. And we do so clinging to this stubborn promise in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus declares emphatically, unmistakably, I will build my church. We are a people who are confident, and we are a people that, that though it feels like things are turned upside down in our moment in America, perhaps things are going to be turned right side up. Where in this melu, the church stands as a people who are confessional, who are spiritually vibrant, who are committed to the Great Commission, and we see around our country healthy churches taking shape. That's what I want. That's what you want. So I'm giving my life to in Kansas City, and that's what so many of you are devoting yourself to here by being active members of Compass Bible Church. We're getting to see that take place in a congregation just like this. So we enter the text this morning with, with verse 18 especially, these five verses standing out like Gibraltar, unmissable, unmovable, there for us, standing from this passage and from the template of the New Testament, and a promise that we can indeed rally around. We also observe, even at the beginning, look at this passage, the fact that the church is central to Christ's cosmic work. We read in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the centrality of the local church. We see here in Matthew chapter 16, Christ promising to build his church. Then we see unfolding in the Gospels, of course, Christ going and giving his life, dying for a people, for his church. Then at the end of the Gospels, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see this great commission given five times where we are to go out into the world and make disciples and baptizing people into the church. Then we read the book of Acts, and what do we see? The great story of the church unfolding as we see these uh, uh, apostolic sermons being preached, and we see these missionary journeys being taken, and we see the church metastasizing throughout the Mediterranean region, the Lord building His church. Then the New Testament epistles, what are they? They are these letters from apostles or apostolic associates to specific churches or to believers 
about the church. What the church is to believe and teach. How the church is to be governed. What the Christian life is to look like. How we are to live. And so we see these letters given again and again and again to churches or messages about the church. Then we come to the end of the New Testament what we see in the great unfolding of the end times Christ gives to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. We see this word he gives John and he tells him, gives him the seven messages to be delivered to seven real churches in seven real cities. Findable on a map then, findable on a map now. And then we see ultimately the unfolding of Christ reigning with his people, the church, throughout all the ages to come. It's the Lord's promise for his church. So what I want you to see this morning, even on the front end of this passage, as we think about the church triumphant, is how central the church is to our Lord's work and how central the church should be thus to our lives as believers. And I think perhaps we have overcorrected as evangelicals. I grew up in a, in a conservative Southern Baptist evangelical church, and I would repeatedly hear things like this said. It's not about church membership. It's not about church affiliation. It's about a personal relationship with Christ, and only through that are you saved. And that was a corrective, most likely from a backdrop of Roman Catholicism and, and what many people understood to be church membership making one right with God. And that was a corrective word and a needed word, but it is an incomplete word. And perhaps we've overcorrected by swinging towards this notion of a personal relationship with Christ, and we've swung too far, and, and we've forgotten the centrality of the local church. Indeed, I believe that one is not saved by being a member of a church, but if one isn't an active member of a healthy church, I wonder if one is saved. You see? So from this passage, we see Christ delivering his promise that he will build his church. I want to draw three lines from this passage this morning, three lines from this passage to your Christian life and to this church here, Compass Bible Church. And these three lines are just three basic observations from this text where we see three, where we observe three truths about the church. Truth number one is that Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine. Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine doctrine. We're told in verse, 10, in verse 13 that they have come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and evidently they're in a little reprieve from ministry. Jesus there with his disciples, this, this region, Caesarea Philippi, known for its, its cool climate and a, a suitable place one might pause to, to rest and relax and reflect. And he is there with his disciples, and verse 13 tells us he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? is. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, now Jesus is not confused about his personal identity. He, he does not need help to uh, solidify his self-esteem. No, he's asking this question to probe the hearts and the minds of his most intimate disciples as to his true identity, his true personhood, his true work. And as a reminder, when we look to this verse in the first century, there was a, a pent-up sense of, of messianic expectation for the Jewish people. The Jewish people looked for the coming Messiah, and Jewish boys and Jewish girls were taught from childhood to, to look for, to anticipate, to expect the Messiah to come. 
The one of whom the prophets had had spoken of. The one of whom these Old Testament signs and types had pointed to. There was this expectation that the Messiah would come. And periodically, individuals would come claiming to be the Messiah. Making a messianic claim. And they would be tried and, and we might say found wanting. So Jesus is here in this setting with his disciples in a backdrop of messianic expectation and with Jesus himself increasingly stepping on the stage and claiming to be the Messiah. He asked them in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they say to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's going on here? The disciples are bringing to bear the most common points of reference, the most common identifiers that Jesus is receiving in this moment in his ministry. Some are saying John the Baptist. John the Baptist at this point, he he has died a a, a gruesome death. You recall the story. He's been beheaded. But John the Baptist's ministry in in many ways is similar to the ministry of Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist preached a message of repentance, and Jesus preached a message of repentance. John the Baptist spoke of the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus spoke of, of the coming of the kingdom. John baptized, and Jesus baptized. John lived an austere life, and Jesus lived an austere life. And so many are seeing Jesus and thinking, This is John the Baptist having reappeared. Others are suggesting it's Elijah, Elijah the great prophet of the Old Testament, that prophet of power, that prophet who displayed the the power of God, for instance, in places like Mount Carmel, the one through whom God performed many signs and wonders. And so some people see Jesus and Jesus walking on water and Jesus feeding the multitudes and Jesus healing the lame and Jesus raising the dead. They see this power that Jesus has and it, it reminds them of the stories they've read of Elijah and they conclude this is Elijah having come back. Still others, Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the one who had a burden of ministry within him. And some see Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, who who, who lamented his own people's rejection of him, who, who was moved to tears over his people's not following him as Messiah. And Jesus, they see, through Jesus, they see similarities to, to Jeremiah. They concluded as Jeremiah returned. Or yet, one of the prophets. So what we see here is we see Jesus' disciples offering to our Lord the best assessments in that ministry moment. We see them offering the best the observant crowd has to offer about who Jesus is. I'm reminded as I read these verses and think about this passage as a whole, reminded about these religious documentaries that come out. And we're in the summer now, so we're like post-Easter, but still a few months away from Christmas. But you, you know what I'm talking about. Normally every Easter, every Christmas season, you turn on one of the network television stations or, or perhaps the History Channel or, or um, you know, the documentary TV, and, 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 you're just, and you read and, and you watch, and there are these documentaries about Jesus, and normally they're entitled something like, you know, who was the historical Jesus? And typically they have guests they interview, and these guests have uh, advanced degrees, PhD degrees, perhaps from you know, elite institutions in America. And so it all, looked, it all looked so prestigious. It all looks 
It, it, all looked, it all looked so insightful. It all looked so unquestionably accurate what will come out of these scholars' mouths. And invariably, these documentaries go back and they'll say something like this, these scholars. They'll, they'll conclude that Jesus was a unique religious leader. He was a, a singular spiritual leader. He was a great moral teacher. In his Sermon on the Mount, we would do well if we followed it also. And whether it is in the first century or the 21st century, any assessment of Christ that doesn't very quickly get at this confession that Peter's about to make, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is an insufficient confession. Notice verse 15. Jesus sharpens the question now. He says to them, moving from the abstract to the personal, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, ultimately, it's not enough to leave the question in the abstract. It matters, but it doesn't matter ultimately what your friend or your coworker, or your neighbor or your family member thinks about Christ. Ultimately, for your eternal state, it matters who you confess Christ to be. Jesus sharpens the question for his disciples, and the text sharpens it for us this morning as well. Perhaps you're visiting this church today, you're joining via live stream, and you're here, you're you're kind of nibbling around the edges. You see people who seem to be passionate about Christ, and they're singing with full voice, and the pastor takes the Word of God seriously, and, and you're questioning, and you're wondering, and you're inquiring, and, and, and the question for you today must be sharpened to who do you confess Jesus to be? For any of us, for all of us, that ultimate question that we must answer, who is Christ? Who do you say that I am? And then verse 16, we see Peter declare you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter often gets it wrong, right? He's the apostle that has the spiritual gift of putting his foot in his mouth, right? He gets it wrong so often. But here, he gets it exactly right. You are the Christ. You are the, you are the Messiah. You're the one our parents told us about. You're the one we heard rabbis speak of that would come. The one the prophets of old in our testament have pointed to. The one the signs in the sacrificial system drew our focus upon. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is the money phrase. For as we read the Gospels, we understand that the ultimate rub between Christ and the Jewish leadership was not His teaching, not even His signs. It was this, this rock-solid claim to be God's Son and thus to be equal with God. That is for which they took up stones to kill Him. Peter, as we shall see, given divine insight, gets it exactly right. And that is, that confession is the confession that you must make. That confession is the confession that every faithful church makes. Notice verse 17. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, this is not because Peter is more insightful than his ministry colleagues. 
This is not because Peter had, had you know, collaborated in the discovery process with other disciples, and they, 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 had, they, had, been, they had been documenting Jesus' works and cross-checking Scripture, and, and, and they've come to the conclusion after evaluating the, the empirical evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood, human nature has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a rich phrase because it ensures that this testimony is right. It's a rich phrase because it's a reminder that all spiritual insight ultimately is not based upon our own human ability, but is a matter of divine revelation. The Lord has given us his book, the Bible, the Word of God, as repository of divine revelation, as God's Word to us and for us, and we see it by faith, we believe it by faith, we seek to live it by faith, but all that is done in concert with the working of the Spirit in our lives. Indeed, none of us would make that confession that Peter made without the spiritual work of God in our lives as well. You see? Well, there's an observation in all of this, and that is that Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine. And we see that observation, especially in verse 18, the verse that we'll spend the bulk of our time in today. Jesus now says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What is Jesus building his church upon? Well, I think the rock here is a reference to Peter because my brother-in-law, he's Catholic, and he told me that he was thought that this is a reference to Peter and that Peter was the first pope. And Christ appointed Peter as the first pope, and that established the papacy. And now we have apostolic succession from Peter all the way down to today. And so voila, the church is established on Peter. Brothers and sisters, that's rubbish. That's not only wrong news. That would be depressing news if that were accurate news. Peter got so much wrong. You think our Lord would stake the future of the church on him? Jesus is saying here in verse 18, I will build my church on this rock, this statement about my own person and work, the identity of our Lord. That's what he's saying. And so as a church, and as you are a congregation here, we confess much. We believe much. We teach much. But at the very foundational level of all of our beliefs, of all of our teaching, is this confession of the person and work of Christ. I mentioned the earlier service that in the Western Seminary, we, we all believe to, uh, we all contract covenantally to believe and teach in accordance with and not contrary to, not one, not two, not three, but four confessional statements. You say, now why in the world, why do you need four documents? Because our world has lost its mind. That's why. Number one, the Baptist faith and message, which is uh, the statement you would expect a Southern Baptist institution to hold and to, and to, to believe and teach and defend. Number two, uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is uh, the gold standard statement on, on what Scripture is and what it means for the Scripture to be fully inspired and inerrant. Number three, the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that, that outlines so clearly and biblically what manhood is and what womanhood is and the roles in the church and in the home that God has established for men and women to fulfill. And then fourthly, the national statement on, on, on biblical sexuality and gender and, and an essential statement that speaks about what it means to be, what, what, what biblical personhood is and to be a man and woman created in God's image and, and what gender means and all the rest. And all of those statements are essential because our world has lost its mind and we need to continue to hold ourselves internally accountable and continue to project externally 
with clarity what we believe and teach. But don't miss through four statements what's at the foundation of it all. That is the person and work of Jesus. And a church can be fuzzy about how the end times play out. A church can be unclear about how a local church is to establish its polity. There's some elbow room there without disaster setting in. But if the church is unclear about the person and work of Christ, disaster has already set in. Observation number one, Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine. Observation number two, Jesus is Lord over the church. Notice verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We, we will ring out of these five words, everything appropriate to get this morning, but at this moment I want to focus you on this fourth word, this word, my. Notice the affection Jesus has for the church. Notice the ownership Jesus has for the church. Notice the commitment Jesus makes to the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I uh, have been ministering and serving in local church settings now for about close to 25 years. And I once had someone say to me in, in the church setting, said, the thing I love about our church is that it's not, it's not my church. It's not your church. It, it's, it's all of our church. And I know what that person meant. He was kind of ringing up congregationalism in conversation. But, but if you think about it carefully, no, it's not my church. No, it wasn't his church. But actually, it's not all of our church either. It's the Lord's church. And the Lord's rule, yes, is exercised in accordance with Scripture, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and in particular through, through, through the leadership of godly elders within the context of the local church, that possession, that stewardship is mediated by our Lord in the context of his local church. But it is his church. Jesus is Lord of the church. How can he make such a claim? Because he died for the church. Because he was raised for the church. Because right now he's interceding for the church. Right now he's actually building his church. And one day he will come back for his people, the church. You see? I fear as I read these verses and reflected upon the sermon today, I, I fear that we have fallen into a consumeristic mindset that shows up so very often, even in conservative evangelical churches today, so very often. And it's a consumeristic mindset that where we consciously or not establish our church membership or our church attendance patterns based upon merely what I like. I was talking to someone in Kansas City a while back, and uh, someone I didn't know, I just bumped into them in a, in a social setting, and I, we were talking about church, and I said, well, where do you attend? And he said to me, not jokingly, just very casually, he said, well, it depends upon when we want to go. If we want, if we want to go to a Saturday night service, we go here. If we want to go to an early Sunday morning service, we go there. If we want to go to a later Sunday service, we go over there. And like alarm bells are going off my head as this guy's saying this to me. And I'm like, what, 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 what are you talking about? That is alien to New Testament Christianity. 
We are not evangelical free agents floating around to, 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 to associate ourselves with whichever church meets our present desire, whether it's a, a time of service or music style or any other thing. There should be a, a prior commitment to where we realize the church is the Lord's and we give ourselves to it. We serve under Him. We minister under Him. We worship unto Him. We are a part of His church. You see? Jesus is Lord over his church. Notice with me thirdly, Jesus guarantees the church's success. Notice these five words in the middle of verse 18. And just let each word register. I, not Peter, heaven knows, not even Paul, not even Pastor Mike or Pastor Jason or any other human leader, Jesus takes on personal responsibility. I will. I love the certainty there. I, I will, not I hope. I, I will build. I love the activity, the industry of that word, that Jesus is not a passive observer of his church, He's an active participant in it. He is ensuring its ongoing building. I will build, we've talked about my, I will build my church. Church. There are very few sweeter words that can come out of my mouth today than that word, church. It's the Greek word ekklesia. It speaks to those who have been called out of the world and called together in an assembly. And often when we hear the word church, we tend to think, often think of the church universal comprised of all the saints of all time, the church spiritual, the church universal. But I remind us this morning that, that virtually every reference to the church in the New Testament we see is not to the church spiritual, the church universal, it's to the church individual, the church gathered, a particular congregation. So Jesus is saying here, I will build my church. I personally, I will build my church. Now, wait a minute. What about my parachurch ministry? What about my men's Bible study? What about my Tuesday night women's mentor group? What about my seminary? What does this say about that? I think what we should deduce from this passage is this, that Jesus is committed to building his church, and in as much as our parachurch ministry, our, our inner church ministry, is a part of strengthening and serving the church, then we can do so with confidence that we are abiding in the blessing of Christ. But if my parachurch ministry or my, my, my inner church group becomes more about the group or the parachurch operation than about strengthening the church and serving the church, then we're getting on really thin ice. Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, is this an assurance that every local church, if they just cling stubbornly enough to this promise, that they will remain intact and healthy generation and generation? Unfortunately, the answer is no. We all know churches that wither and many churches that die, and they die for good reasons. Nor is this a, a promise that enables us to be passive or unthoughtful or or, 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 or not being strategic about our ministry? No. 
But this is a promise that for 2,000 years, whether persecution or pestilence or anything in between, any dire circumstance and situation, whether it is abuses in the Roman Catholic Church to Muslim invaders to, to contemporary evangelicalism, having so very often fallen into compromise. It's a promise that for 2,000 years, Christ has had a witness, and Christ will have a witness still. But wait a minute, I thought you said the church in America these days, generally speaking, is, is declining. And we would see these, uh, these demographic studies and, and these surveys, the, the, the number of people identifying as born-again believers tends to be going down as a percentage of the population, yes. But if I could take you right now around the globe and show you what God is doing, it would make your socks roll up and down. I was just in Central Asia two weeks ago and heard firsthand about what God is doing amongst the Iranian people. It, it is truly incredible. What God is doing right now through Mandarin speaking Chinese, I can speak of that uh, with, with very intimate knowledge. It's amazing to see what God is doing. What's even taking place in, in, in places like North Korea is encouraging. What's taking place in sub-Saharan Africa is truly encouraging. So right now we gather today and we can say with full integrity that Jesus' promise to build his church has been for 2,000 years true and is true today. Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church, my church, the gates of Hades will not overpower. Now, what does that mean? Is that referring to spiritual warfare? I think what's referring to here is, is, is reference to death itself. The death of Christ, which would be short-lived, would not hinder his church. The death of any leader will not hinder his church. We all get fretful when our favorite preacher dies, when our, when our, faithful, when our favorite minister retires. When generational Christian leaders who serve with conviction and integrity pass away, but God is always raising up the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. He's always raising them up. And I shared in the earlier service this morning one of my favorite quotes that always comes to mind in this passage is from the French statesman Charles de Gaulle, who famously observed that cemeteries are full of indispensable men. And that is true. The Lord is raising up a new generation of ministers. Pastor Mike mentioned Al Mohler, our friend who's here today, and to see what God is doing on that campus and my campus of students coming in record numbers to be trained to pastor and to go to the mission field. Folks, we have every reason in a world of pronounced darkness to be encouraged and optimistic for the confessing church. Our Lord will build his church. Now, what do we do with verse 19? It shows up here. And it almost reads like a non sequitur. It seems like we follow the logic very clearly. Jesus is with his disciples, and uh, he's spoken about his own identity. They've declared, Peter's declared, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has transitioned from that confession to the church, that he would build his church upon this great confession. And we're moving, 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 moving. And now verse 19 comes in, which, which appears almost to be an odd appendage to an otherwise clear narrative. Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What's he referring to here? He's referring to the church's basic ministerial responsibility to guard against sin in its own congregation. Matthew 18 unpacks us a touch more where we see church discipline being explained as to how it's to function and be practiced. But here the point I want you to see is that Jesus cares about a pure church. 
And it's not that if you have a seminary degree or you've been ordained to ministry or some other sort of spiritual credential that you can announce forgiveness or a lack of forgiveness based upon some, some you know, sacerdotal power within you. That's not what's going on here. But Jesus is telling the church and those who lead the church that, that, that we can't observe. And if a person is unrepentant and persisting in their sin, then we tell the church and we give it to the church and, and we declare based upon their obstinacy that until they repent, they are bound in their sins and the consequences thereof. But also if a person is broken and contrition is seen and repentance does take place, then we can reassure them based upon the grace of God that they have been washed whiter than snow, you see? But the broader point I want you to take from verse 19 and tuck under this third observation that Jesus guarantees the church's success is that that church Jesus is building, he wants it to be a pure church. He wants his people to take seriously Christ's likeness and the congregation as a whole to be marked by the savor of Christ and personal holiness to be an active pursuit of believers, you see? For our witness, your witness, yes, individually goes back to how you live your life before Christ and the witness that you give to others, verbal and, and your behavior and all the rest. But collectively, there's a witness component as well. And every church indeed is to be a lighthouse, shining gospel light. And that gospel light comes as distinction, as God's people live a distinct life and, and conduct their business in distinct ways. And the vocabulary is distinctly Christian. And that, that contrast with the dark world. And some churches, unfortunately, they are so much like the world that they are nearly as dark as the world. They can't figure out why the world won't come to their church to see the difference because there is no difference. But where there's a healthy church, there's a contrast. And where there's a healthy congregation, there are healthy individuals within it that comprise that congregation that indeed are living their lives in accordance with Scripture and thus in contrast to the ways of the world. You see how that plays into Jesus' guarantee to build his church and his desire for his church? These realities came home to me in a very poignant way a few years ago. I uh, was in Kansas City where, where we live, as Pastor Mike mentioned, and my wife and I were there, and our, our kids were at other activities, and it was just the two of us, and we were down on the, uh, the Country Club Plaza, which is this nice outdoor shopping area in Kansas City, block after block of retail stores and, and restaurants, and just a nice place to spend a couple of hours on a pleasant afternoon. And we were there together walking around and going into stores, and, and we agreed that we would split up for you know, like 20 minutes, and she'd go to a couple of stores, and... I'd go to a couple of stores, and we'd reconnect shortly. And so I stepped into a men's clothing store on the, on the plaza there, a very traditional men's clothing store. I walked in it, and uh, I got, walked in the store, and uh, the, uh, the salesman immediately greeted me. And the salesman was a, a tall gentleman, nearly as tall as I am, and about early, mid-70s, well put together, nice suit, just well appointed in every way. And he comes up to me and immediately starts talking. You know, being a good salesman, he starts establishing that rapport, and he starts talking to me, and, and I'm just kind of poking around, not, not really wanting to make a con conversation, much less a friend for life, just trying to, just trying to, just contemplating a transaction, not looking to establish a new, a new life friend. Well, anyway, he, he's yapping at me, and I'm immediately struck by how coarse his vocabulary is. I mean, he is, he is just speaking very vulgarly, talking, and, uh, and I go from like, Jason the pastor or even Jason the Christian to like just as a member of like the human species. I'm, I'm really shocked that the guy's talking this way as the salesman in the store engaging in retail work. 
So anyway, I'm just trying to kind of get out of the store. I'm making my way. I entered this door on the side. I'm making my way through the store to, to exit by the other doorway. And he, he's there with me. He's there hot on my heels talking. And I'm, I'm trying to get out. Well, by the time I'm trying to leave the other door, I see my wife step in the other entrance door. So I'm kind of waving to her so she'll come to me and we can leave the store. She's meandering her way towards me. Well, anyway, this guy's just still yapping, yapping, yapping. Well, anyway, my wife comes up and thinks, well, surely he will cease from his behavior with my wife here, but, but, but that was too much to hope for. So he's just carrying on business as usual, four-letter this, four-letter that. So I'm just trying to leave. I really went out of the store at this point, just trying to leave. And so he says to me as we're walking towards the door, he says to me, he says, well, what part in Kansas City do you guys live? And I say, well, we live in North Kansas City. He says, I used to live in North Kansas City. Okay, again, just trying to leave, not trying to make a new friend, just trying to leave. And uh, he says, well, where in North Kansas City? And I say, we, we live off uh, Vivian Road. He says, I used to live off Vivian Road. And uh, he said, well, where on Vivian Road? And I said, well, Vivian Road near North Oak Traffic Way. He says, I used to live right there. And he said, well, like, which house are you in? And, uh, and, uh, and he, I just want to leave. I just want to leave. I, I, I've long since given up on buying anything. I just want out. Well, I say, well, we live in this white house. It's kind of up on a hill. And he says, oh, I know the house. He said, I thought the Baptists owned that house. And I said, the Baptists do own the house. And I could tell he's beginning to think now, you know, about what's been taking place. And he said, uh, he said so are, are you affiliated with the Baptist seminary? And I, I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, what do you do there? And I said, well, I said, I, I'm the president. And I, I can tell he's immediately. <laughs> and then he, he, he announces to the store and all of God's people, he announces, hallelujah, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> and I don't know whether to shoot him or myself in that moment. But I felt like in that moment, like my whole life's ministry has been a failure based upon this guy. <laughs> but in that moment, I remembered something about this passage and something about the testimony of the church. And that is every time a person's walking around living like hell day in and day out, but makes a declaration, hallelujah, I'm a Baptist, that is fundamentally undermining the message of Christ. And brothers and sisters, in a less severe way, every time we go around and conduct our business Monday through Saturday in a way that is not congruent with the clear teaching of Scripture, we are undermining the witness of Christ. It's a glorious task we get to be a part of, serving Christ with Him, building His church. And I'm thankful for the work that's taking place here, the work clearly that you guys are a part of. And I pray for you and with you that Jesus' church here in this place Compass Bible will indeed prove to be triumphant. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for these verses. We thank you for these people and the privilege of stewarding this service together. And Father, I pray in this moment, especially for the visitor or visitors who are peering in trying to make sense of it all, I pray your spirit would register in their heart as it did Peter. Move them to confess Jesus as Lord and God. Thank you for this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.